I view possessions and uh, money as a gift from God. There's many times in my life when, when that was not the case. I figured what I earned on my own, that would be mine. And until I surrendered my life to Jesus totally and made him the Lordship of everything that I am, my time, my money, my possessions, did I fully understand the joy of giving. Uh, the rich man in Mark or Luke chapter 12 uh, is a very good example and this was definitely uh, also a story that helped me understand that we need to give what we can to the Lord put him first in our giving we had just got married and uh, had a good job we were living large but then in 1970 there was this uh, pastor of ours in the Winkler Church. He says, I'm here tonight because of a call to contact you regarding if you would be interested in moving from your position that you have to a community in Southern Ontario. There's been a revival there and many people have come to know the Lord and they have large families there's dozens of kids without a shepherd. We're starting a church and your name came up. I'm here to ask you, would you consider coming to Aylmer for a term? That was really not in my plan at that time. Things were going well and uh, I worked here for 25 years. I could retire at 54. My wife had a job there as well and uh, we had a good pension plan and uh, opportunity for advancement was good. We talked to our friends, co-workers, and everybody thought that the first answer was, you're going to quit your job? What are you going to do there? I said, I don't know. So you mean to say you don't have a job lined up at the other end? I said, no. Well, you're crazy. Why would you do such a thing? It doesn't make any sense. We had sold a lot of our possessions. We put our house up for sale. This happened very quickly. And it was such a pleasure counseling and leading young teenagers to the Lord. It was such a reward. Any money for promotions could ever be likened to this experience. I find joy in serving the Lord and there's no other thing that can take the place for that. And uh, I would recommend anyone, if you feel the call of the Lord, to take it seriously. Don't worry about anything. Ooh. I've watched that like five times. I sat in the room while he shared and I... Ah. 
you're a younger person and you are impacted by that, find Norm Weeb and beg him to go for coffee with you. <laughs> I love that picture. He went into greater detail about, I had this job, the pension was so good, I was going to retire by 54. And God called me to become a youth pastor in a different community for no money, where no job was waiting. And I love how he summarized it. No reward could compare to the ministry. Of, of, of loving these teenagers, pointing them to Jesus, discipling them. Those are the real riches, my friends. And I know as you watch that, deep down in your hearts, you know that too. You know that to be true. Now, thankfully, not every one of us are being called to Aylmer. <laughs> it doesn't always look exactly the same way. But believe me, my friends, if you love Jesus, God's going to prod you a little bit around this stuff. And I say that, and I mean that. If, if, if you were impacted by that, find Norm and ask him for coffee. I mean that. We're multi-generational around here, and we love that. So when there's someone older than you that, that says something to you or you observe something about them that encourages you, I, I, I truly encourage you, make the most of the fact that we're multi-generational. Find someone to, to walk with you a bit who's walked somewhere you have not yet. We are best as a community when we're both discipling and being discipled. And so just a quick side encouragement there. And Norm, thank you so much for, for, for sharing your heart, for having your Bible on your lap and sharing Jesus. And that was very, very cool. Um, in the, in, uh, just so you know, so you're aware, we're in the fourth week of five. We're getting to the end. For some reason, you're still showing up, and I praise God for that. We've been talking about money for a number of weeks now in a series we're calling Generous. Um, the open hands of the gospel. So we're looking at the different, there's different sides of the gospel, right? And, and, and it impacts everything. It, it changes everything about us. A transformed life, a, a, a sanctified life is a life that's becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's all rounded in regards to uh, the gospel affecting every, every part of us. And so we continue to look at passages throughout the scriptures. We're going to be looking at a passage in Acts chapter 4 this morning. And um, just recently, in, in, in the last couple of weeks, we, we looked at a couple really difficult passages, the words of Jesus, uh, where, uh, where he talks about money. He's talking to a rich young ruler and tells him to sell everything he has to, and follow him, and the man walks away sad. And Pastor Eldon preached wonderfully on a parable about a rich fool who had a great harvest and built bigger barns. Unfortunately, it was all stuff he couldn't take with him. He was also called to sell and to follow. So those are negative examples, right? A rich fool. You kind of know by the heading it's not a good thing. Um, the rich young ruler who walks away sad, it's a, it's a negative example. Well, this morning, my friends, we're told not, we're told not to be like those two. But this morning we're told to be like someone else. We are told to be like 
um, this man named Barnabas, we're given a positive example this morning. That's very, very nice, isn't it? Interestingly, I think you will find this positive example no less convicting. It's always fun how that works. So let me read you the passages in Acts chapter 4. It starts in verse 32. And then we'll get right in. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believe, that's the entire church, every believer, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you have a bulletin and, and you see the, the points there, I'll give them all to you now and then we'll walk through them. I have a heading there and it says this, gospel-oriented, spirit-filled community is marked by the following three things. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list that's contained in this text. Gospel-oriented, spirit-filled community is marked by a selfless view of possessions Secondly, powerful preaching and fervent prayer. And thirdly, gospel-oriented, spirit-filled community is marked by generous giving. A selfless view of possessions, powerful preaching and fervent prayer, and generous giving. Why don't we pray together as we get into this. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Um, we trust, Lord, that these are your very words, that, that the Bible is God-breathed. It's breathed out by you um, um, and, so, and written with human hands. And that yet, Lord, these are your very words for us to hear. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. And as we continue to press into um, really a right understanding of things, of money, Lord, would we not be afraid of the proddings? Would we not be afraid of the conviction? For, Lord, I truly believe that you're after our hearts in all of this. And I truly believe that the reason you call us to this is because there's so much deeper joy to be found in being faithful in this. So, Lord, I pray that you would, you would teach us, you would um, be gracious to us all the while. And guide us as we spend this time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we will start with this uh, selfless view of possessions that we see. It's really, really clear here. Look at the first verse, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified. And no one said, here's a sign, here's a reason why they were unified. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. If that's the heartbeat of this community, what's there to be divided about? No one viewed their own things as their own. So I've got three sub-points here. I trick you a little bit. I show you three points. I've got like nine sub-points this morning. So let's go. First, 
A selfless view of possessions begins with the right understanding of who everything belongs to. And the right understanding that the Bible would inform us about this is that everything actually belongs to God. Look at Psalm 24. It starts this way. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So a right understanding and a helpful way for us to to have a selfless view of possessions is to have a right understanding of them. And the Bible is really clear. Everything on the planet is God's. Everything and everyone in it, it belongs to God. That helps us to be a little bit more selfless with our stuff because we recognize whose it actually is. Psalm 50 verse 10 puts it this way, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. We talked about a farmer, I think it was last week, had crops. And so many of them, and he thought, I have so much wealth. I'm going to build bigger barns for my things, and I will live large. But Psalm 50 tells us that the fields, the animals on the fields, the birds he knows about, all of it is his. It's actually his. And so we need to have this right understanding of the fact that everything belongs to God. So my question for us is, do you hold a biblical view or a cultural view of money and possessions? Which one do you hold in your heart, in your mind? How do you view your stuff? Do you have the cultural view? Hey, you work hard for this. You bring it in. It's yours to have, to keep, to use however you want. If I get a lot, it's simply God's blessing to me, and I will use it as I please. That's a quasi-Christian cultural view. But a biblical view would be one that says, it's all God's. He has richly lavished blessing on me, but as we'll, as we'll see, I'm simply a conduit of that blessing. Do you hold a biblical view or cultural view of money and possessions? I'll read the verses again. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Jump to verse 34. Now, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. See, the church in Acts rightly understood themselves as managers or conduits of God's possessions. All money and possessions are, in fact, God's, and we are entrusted with them. It's like an investment banker. The money isn't theirs. The money is his client's money, and he's to handle it, manage it um, in a proper way in which the client wants it used. There's a clear objective of what the client wants and wants done with the money, and that's what the investment banker does with it unless his name is Bernie Madoff. In that case, he does very different things with that money. But that's what a real, true, trustworthy investment banker is supposed to do. There's a parable in Matthew 25. It's also in Luke 19, the parable of the talents, where this is precisely the case. The master entrusts three different servants with three different amounts of his money, of these talents. And he comes back and he asks the question, what did you do with the talents, with the money I gave you? What did you do with it? How did you invest it? And the one who buried it was judged. 
He didn't honor the master with what he had been entrusted with. Everything belongs to God, and yet he entrusts his servants with possessions. Now, I'm always reluctant to uh, give you an illustration to tell you a story that could shed any positive light on me. I hope you know by now I typically tell you stories that shine a negative light on me and show you what a wretched sinner I am. I do that on purpose. I don't want to self-glorify myself anyway. So if this story has any tinge of that, the credit goes to my wife, Emily, and it truly should. We had a young woman live with us, a teenage girl who was pregnant that we had known and, uh, uh, years earlier, um, come from a horrific background, and we had her come and stay and live with us for a while. Again, Emily is the spearheader there. She lived in our house a few years ago, um, did not have a, a childhood like a child should have. Uh, and here she was, pregnant and having a child of her own. And um, so we decided, hey, let's just give her, let's give her a little time to have a, a home that's happy, right? A home that's safe and a home that can nurture her. And maybe this baby will, maybe she'll learn something of mothering. Uh, the week I think I don't need Kleenex because I didn't think I was going to talk about anything deep, <laughs> anything personal. Ah, uh, yeah. The crying pastor. I'm quickly getting my... Uh, um, we, had a, we had a room, like literally through our garage. It has a room and a, a bathroom. It was kind of a playroom, but it's an extra room in our house. And uh, so she stayed there, and it was no skin off our backs didn't make a difference. Um, and, uh, but you know what? I would find myself as she lived there for a number of months, you know, like in our, we have, we have one living room area. Wouldn't you know in the evening, I just want my space, right? Ah, what a, what a, what a pain it is to share the space. I'm, I'm, I'm with my wife, but I'm also with our, our tenant and just the three of us hanging out. You know, that's not my style. I, I like my, I, I, I like, I like to retreat <laughs> and have that space. But, you know, it was a really growing experience for us because um, we housed her, and it was okay, and it was relatively easy, and it didn't make much difference to us. And we expected the whole time because of her dynamic that we'd never get a thank you for this, and so we, that was certainly not the reason that we did any of this. But, you know, after she moved out and had her baby and um, got a little more established, um, Every Christmas she comes back to our house, does a Christmas with us because there's no family to have a Christmas with. Um, she's embraced by you when she comes here. And every, uh, every Mother's Day she, she just writes something to Emily, you know, of how much she loves her. And uh, can I tell you, my friends, If we would view our extra rooms in our houses as opportunities, if we would view our houses, if we would view our cars, if we, we would view our food and our, in our fridges as God's, not mine, what impact we could have in the lives of other people. Um, okay, let's get going. Let's move on to greener pastures. Secondly, sub-point we get in order to give. We get in order to give. 
Do you see the people and what they're doing? They have these possessions and they're, they're just bringing them to the apostles' feet as there's any need. I have these resources. They're mine. They're available to me. God has blessed me with them and I see need. I've been blessed to give. I, I, I'm making this point over and over again because I see it here again. We get in order to give. I want to jump, though, to Ephesians chapter 4.28 that says something really interesting. I think it just makes this point really clearly. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This verse is for thieves. Let the thief no longer steal, but work hard with your own hands. Why? So that you have something to give to anyone who has need. We're hearing the exact same thing as we're hearing in these verses. And in fact, we as Christians are all a bunch of thieves saved by grace. And once we're thieves who are saved by grace, we begin to see that there's needs for other people around and we share. But do you see in this verse there are three different ways we could choose to live? We could first choose to live as thieves. We could steal to get. Or, secondly, we, could get, we can work to get. We also see that in this verse. So there's three ways. First, we can steal to get. Second, we could work to get. Or third, we can work to get in order to give. There's these three views. There's these three opportunities. Here's the thing. Most of us live out number two. Work to get. I work to get. And yet the Bible is unrelenting in urging us to live out number three. Give to get in order to give. Sorry, work to get in order to give. We see it in Acts 4. We see it in Acts 2. We see it in Ephesians 4. We see it in Psalm 67 where this all began. We have been blessed to be a blessing to the nation. And that mandate is reiterated in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples, go and make more disciples. We have been blessed to be a blessing to the nations. We get in order to give. Here's a good way of putting it. We're conduits of God's grace. You know what a conduit is? We have a few conduits even in this room. You can't see them. They, they, some of them go under the stage and through the wall. And then when we do renos, we seal off the conduits by accident. And Anyways, you know. But we can run cable through the conduit from one end to the other. We, we have something and we want to get it across the room, right? Conduit, it's, it's, a, it's a channel. It, it, it works one way, gets something from somewhere to another place. We are conduits of God's grace. We are conduits of his blessing. He gives to us in order for us to be conduits of his blessing. It's his, all things are his, and we have been purposed to be a blessing to the nations, and we are simply the conduits. Regarding this talk of conduits, John Piper in his phenomenal book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, if you're thinking of vocational ministry or leadership in the church, I encourage you to read Brothers, we're not professionals. We're not supposed to look like secular business in the church. We are meant to look completely otherly in ministry. He says this, if you want to be a conduit for God's grace, you don't have to be lined with gold. Copper will do. If you want to be a conduit for God's grace, you don't have to be lined with gold. Copper will do. If you make six figures, you don't have to live a six-figure lifestyle. That's the culture's view. That's not the Bible's view. Because you make it doesn't mean you need to look like you make it. 
We don't need to line ourselves as conduits with gold when copper will do. The mandate is to be a blessing to others, to work in order to share with anyone who has need. Copper will do, my friends. Thirdly, selflessness unifies, or sharing is caring, however you want to. Selflessness unifies, though. But look at verse 32 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified. And no one said that any of, his things, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was a selflessness. And this selflessness unified the church. There is a man, I have to be honest with you, I have not yet met in this church who um, a few years ago dropped off a set of keys to Pastor Gary for the use of the pastors. He has a cabin on the river, and he said, if it's not booked as a bed and breakfast, use it. We'd like you to go there for prayer days, for study times. Um, And so we have a set of keys, and every once in a while when I feel like um, I'm not praying much or, you know, whatever, it's... There is a cabin that someone owns in this church family who says, take the keys and go and use it. God's blessed me to be a conduit, and here's a way I can love, I can serve. It sits, it's empty sometimes. It's a rental, bed and breakfast. Use it. Take it. If it's, if it's free, use it. I want to bless you with it. I love that he does that. And it's such a, a blessing to me and to others in the staff and our lead team have met there, all sorts of things. John chapter 17 and verse 20 says, here's what Jesus says, I do not ask for for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is asking for people to come to faith. He's praying to the heavenly father that they may all be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, Jesus prays, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one. Even as we are one, Jesus says to the Father, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer for the church, for the church that he is establishing, he's near crucifixion at this point in John chapter 17, he's praying for the church that will be birthed out of his ministry, and he prays that the church would be one. Well, in Acts chapter 4, we see a church that is one, and they are unified, and they have all things in common. There is a tie to selflessness and releasing our grip on our things that ties to the unity of the church. Let me share you an example, a beautiful example. I asked Pastor John permission for this. Um, but you know, um, a while back, uh, Pastor John and Heather went from um, no kids to four kids, like that. They were able to adopt four siblings into their home. And you know what's amazing is the selflessness um, that Pastor John and Heather were, were, were able to observe in this place. People flooded to them. Here's some, here's some, here's some of our, like our, 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 our stuff for, for kids that you need. Here's high chairs. Here's this. Here's that. Just flooding them with that. Do you know that, that the, 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 the townhouse they lived in was big enough for John and Heather? It wasn't big enough for a family of six. And so they needed to move. And they had a loss. And somebody secretly went 
um, that they don't even know about and said, let us cover the hit. Just help. Because you're not adopting kids. We're adopting kids. We're a family. You're adopting. We're adopting. You have a need. We have a need. That, my friends, is gospel community. It's so good. And I'm so encouraged to be a part of a church family that see life that way. Can I tell you, that kind of thing unifies. When we say, you have a need, we have a need. Your family's expanding, our family's expanding. There is a need among us because you have a need. We're going to meet it. It's a beautiful thing. That kind of selflessness unifies. It really does. Secondly, Um, we see that gospel-oriented, spirit-filled community is marked by powerful preaching and fervent prayer. Look at verse 33. This may seem like we're veering off track here. We're not. Verse 33 says, right in the middle of this passage about generosity, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What continued to happen in the midst of this unified community that was generous and selfless was powerful preaching. Now, I'm borrowing fervent prayer from the verses preceding this text, but they so go hand in hand. This sort of fervent, bold prayer always accompanying powerful preaching. That, the, that great power, uh, the, the, with great power, the apostles were giving their, tes- uh, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They just continue to proclaim the gospel. So a sub-point I have here is what you win them with is what you win them to. And we're talking here about the true gospel. There is a watered-down gospel in our day and age that is simply self-help. Hey, take this along. Grab this little piece that will better your life and be a neat little thing for you to take. Have God do this for you or that for you, this watered-down cultural gospel that's simply an add-on to the way you want to live your life. It's not the full gospel and it's not the true gospel. And the problem is, is what, you, what, what you win them with, and if it's a soft gospel, if it's cheap grace, that's precisely what you'll win the church to. But that's not what the early church was doing. They were proclaiming the gospel with power and with boldness. And so people were one to the true gospel. And it naturally made them generous people. Look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36 where Peter boldly preaches. Look, listen to his sermon to the crowd. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you, he says to the crowd, crucified some bold preaching. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words as he continued to preach in other words long-windedly as some people around here tend to do as he continued with more words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so that uh, so those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about three thousand souls he said to the crowd you killed jesus 
You need to repent, you need to be baptized, and you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. It is straight up gospel preaching. And we see here in chapter 4, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They continued to proclaim the truth. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, on one of his missionary adventures, goes up to Mars Hill in and, and, and to these Greeks, he, he sees that there is this inscription to an unknown God. And Paul gets up and proclaims, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And he commands all people everywhere to repent. This Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent. Paul shows up in this community of people who do not know Jesus and says, you need to know Jesus and you need to repent. And he says that God, this God, this unknown God that you have an inscription to you, I proclaim him to you. And this God has appointed Jesus to judge the righteous, the resurrected one who he has risen from the dead. And he talks about the resurrection of the dead. And some people, we see it in Acts chapter 17, mock him for that. And some people believed. But what he did was he proclaimed the gospel with power. And what he won those people with, he won them to. The true gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator um, that I read last week said this, the remarkable point about this verse, verse 33, is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity. Not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions, the gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving love. The presentation of the gospel message itself made that community generous. That was a natural outworking of it. When the real gospel gospel is proclaimed with power, not some self-help, me-centered Christianity, but the real gospel, right, that prods us, it's more demanding than we think it is. It dramatically changes lives, and the gospel makes us generous. If we are one to and proclaim, proclaim the gospel as revealed in Scripture, we can count on the gracious move of God in our lives and community. Do you, do you notice that as the, the apostles continue to preach with power, great grace was upon them? Those two go hand in hand. Faithfulness to the gospel, proclamation of the gospel, great grace is a byproduct for the people there. Secondly, the kingdom-oriented prayer, ori- um, kingdom-oriented prayer leads to kingdom-oriented living, really, and vice versa. If there's kingdom-oriented living, if you see yourself as a conduit of God's grace and blessing, and you live that way, you're going to pray that way. If you pray that way, you're going to live that way. Well, there's also me prayer versus kingdom-oriented, God-glorifying prayers. Can I tell you a pet peeve of mine, and I don't say this in any sort of cutting way, and I spend a lot of time there myself, spending time in, in groups of people in prayer, and nothing leaves the me prayers. God, would you do this for me, and I, I need this, and would you come through for me on that, and this and that. And there's no view whatsoever of the nations. There's no view whatsoever of reaching the lost. There's no view whatsoever on the reason that we're here. Conduits of grace. Blessed to be a blessing. God, would you give me a raise? God, would you make sure my kids do this right? God, would you make sure that this goes well for me? I need to pass this test, God. And on and on and on we go. And there is a place for that. Don't leave that. But don't begin and end there, my friends. Please. 
may we not begin and end our prayers there. Can we just move up a little bit in the passage? And this is why I include fervent prayer in this passage. Look at verse 29, just before our text this morning. Peter and John get out of prison. Persecution is happening. Listen to the prayer of the church. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Well, you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled, all of them, with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They are being persecuted and they don't once pray, stop the persecution, please. They pray, may in the midst of the context we're in, we continue and never stop proclaiming the good news with boldness. Do you hear the prayer? That is a kingdom-oriented prayer. There is an intertwining of the gospel message, the word, and prayer that we need to see there. They are praying biblical prayers. They are praying, may we continue to proclaim the biblical message of the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce, regarding powerful preaching and prayer going hand in hand, said this, When God's people worship God, they always do two things. They pray and they reflect on the scriptures. Prayer is our talking to God. The scriptures are God's talking to us. And the two always go together. You pray in a right way when you pray scripturally. And you study the scriptures in a right way when you study prayerfully. This is what the church was doing, he says. Biblically informed, bold, fervent, kingdom-oriented, God-glorifying prayer. I want to show this to you again. There is really a parallel text in this um, Two chapters earlier, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, these are famous verses. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. These always are intertwining things. Now, while I have you there, by way of transition, I want to show you that this word fellowship is unpacked here. Look at verse 44. This is how they unpack fellowship in Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's their fellowship. They met together, they broke bread together, they shared meals, they shared their homes, they did these things together, and there was true gospel fellowship. In light of the gospel and a selfless view of possessions, the community of God becomes marked with generous giving. So let's conclude this way really quickly. Thirdly, generous giving. We see that this is voluntary. And we need to see that from the get-go. We see Barnabas come forward as this positive example, but he's doing this all on his own accord. It says that people sort of came forward as there was need and did this. This was not a mandated thing. We see no sign that, that the apostles were saying, Barnabas, it's your turn, man. Sell the field, dude. Sell it. It's your turn. You're up. No, Barnabas just approaches. He has done that. And he brings it all and lays it at the, at the apostles' feet. Barnabas brought the funds from his land of his own volition or as the Holy Spirit led him to do. Some of you might be saying, in, looking at this text and being like, this, is, this sounds like communism. Everything's shared. Everything's, right? Like, it's all, it's sort of even. The poor are, are met by the rich, and the rich kind of come down because they're selling things. Right? You're talking communism here. Well, here's the thing. Communism's legislated. Generosity is voluntary. And what we see in this community, as we see with Barnabas, of his own accord, he volunteered to meet needs around him. Why? 
because his life had been transformed by the gospel. And so what made sense in his context? There's needs. Why wouldn't I meet them? God has given me a field that is an extra space that I don't need. I'm going to sell it and bring it so that it can be used. It's, it's, it's not legislative. Also, communism has to do with the production and the work. Um, this only has to do with selfless sharing. There's no comments about the kinds of work and all that kind of stuff and people's, people making less for certain jobs. That's, none of it is legislated. This is simply... Um, a beautiful response that people have. And what I want you to hear in this whole voluntary thing is that this is, there's no law around this. I'm not telling you to sell your second property. I'm not telling you to, you know, if somebody's adopting kids, that you're supposed to meet every need that they might have in doing that. I'm not telling you that you're supposed to use your spare room to have somebody else live there. I'm not telling you, that, I'm not, don't hear a law here. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But would you understand that as we're under grace, it works itself out in so many ways as the Spirit moves and calls and convicts you to do. And so he may call you to Elmer. And you're like, but I have a pension waiting for me at 54 and no job waiting for me over there. But he's not telling every one of us to do. We're not going to build a law around this because God's word doesn't do that for us. We're not under the law. We're under grace as new covenant people. Not only that, we see in Acts chapter 12 that Peter shows up at a woman named Mary's house and she owns a house. We see that not everybody sold their home to give to the poor and the needy among them. But there are cool stories that happen. I'll tell you another one. There's a family I know. They go to this church, and for a number of years, they've had season's tickets to the most expensive sports team in the region. And, um, and they, they've been generous with that um, and, and all that. But they've, they've had those for a number of years. But you know what they felt as a missionary couple were, were going out into the mission field? Um, a while back, they felt, and let's not renew this year, and let's take the money that we would spend on season's tickets for this team, and let's give it to the missionaries and send them out. We're not going to build a law around that. If you have season's tickets, right? Like, no. But isn't it beautiful that for them, their joy was, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to put it here. I'm going to fuel the mission, and we're going to bless the nation. I love that. I, just, I love it. So we have to see generous giving is voluntary. Secondly, sec, um, generous giving is local church-based. Where does he give it? The, Barnabas goes to the church. It's the local church. It's local church-based. Barnabas isn't playing distributor. He's saying, hey, I see a need here. I'm going to take my funds. I'm going to give a little bit to this. Oh, I like what they're doing over here. I'm going to give a little bit to that. I'm going to give a bit to this. He didn't play distributor. We just have to see that in this text. I know that sounds really advantageous to me, but hear me out. Barnabas sells the field, brings the full amount, and puts it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira, in the very next chapter, bring part of the amount, lie about it. He brings the full amount, puts it at the apostles' feet. He gives it to the church. If the local church is the primary thing that God is doing in the world, and it is, then our giving ought to reflect that value. It's God's value. The church, the body of Christ, is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. And the universal church of God practically fulfills its mission through the local church on a global scale. Local churches, primarily local church based. Now, don't mishear me. There are many good causes, parachurch organizations, poverty relief agencies, and missionary agencies worthy of your money, and we should support them too. But the local church ought to be the place where we give most. 
There are things that Emily and I are passionate about, people we support, and we continue to do that. So now where we're feeling stretched is, well, what are we, are we primarily giving? Are we making sure that our primary giving is to our church family? And then as we see things that grab our hearts, giving there too. This passage is really clear, and the passage we'll look at next week as well, and they're really the primary text about giving in the, in, in the local church, giving in the New Testament. They're local church based. The passage we will look at next week tells us the same thing, and that's what this passage is doing. Listen, every single week we have people coming to us from our church family and from our community seeking help for food, seeking help for right, groceries, for bills they can't pay because of work changes and Desperate times for Christian counseling, for shelter, right? People come to us in our community and our church family. And on a, on a weekly basis, we are meeting needs. And we are doing that because we're more effective together. We have more reach together than we could on our own. Though we are called to respond faithfully in those places too. Look, as we're meeting now, the Agassiz campus has just started. I said something a little bit bold there last week. I'm not sure if I should have, but I looked at them last week as I was preaching to them and said, did you know that you're costing the Chilliwack campus money? Like, did you know that you're a horrible investment? <laughs> right now. Right now. But you know what I said at the same time? Thank you, because you're faith-stretching for the Chilliwack campus. They're... they're we have to give sacrificially. It's not just for here. We're not just giving here. We're giving and we're trying to reach a whole other community with the gospel that needs to hear it desperately. And so they're costing us right now, but they're building and they're growing. And you know what I said to Agassiz? I said, I can't wait till you not only sustain yourself, but when God opens the storehouses of his mercy and you, we find that we are growing and that we are generous and we have overflow. And together, Chilliwack and Agassiz, we say, what community do we reach next? that is not being reached effectively with the gospel. Is that not exciting? So it's faith-stretching. It costs us. It's not a wise investment, but it is when we talk kingdom and not business. It's a beautiful thing. Every week, we have people that come and have needs, and our goal is to reach those. It's local church-based giving. We're in this together, and we ought to have unity in it. This is the primary place where we ought to do our giving. Thirdly, hands open. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What's so staggering about this is the way that you would save, the way that you would have retirement in this culture was by the owning of land. That was the way that you did it. If you owned land, you had security. So when these people sell their land, there's no security blanket. They see a need, they respond, and their security is in that God will provide for their needs as they are conduits of his grace to others. There's no pensions, no RRSPs or stocks. Land was it. And the early church showed no interest in gaining wealth but rather in meeting the needs of the family of faith. See, the gospel opens our hands when we realize that Jesus' hands were nailed on the cross for our sins. When we see the gospel at the forefront, it opens our hands as we see that his hands were opened to take nails on the cross. We also want to be have eyes open. We want to have our hands open. We want to be generous. We also want to have our eyes open to the needs around us. Because it says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. The term needy appears only here in the New Testament. 
it occurs also in the LXX, which is the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15.4, where God says, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will best bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that his commandment that I command you today. There will not be a needy person among you if you follow my instructions about being conduits of his grace, about being a blessing to blessed nations. If you will be faithful to give to the needs around you and have your eyes open to those needs, there will not be a needy person among you. The sharing among the early church and the role in the church was to be a blessing to others, be a blessing to others, a conduit of God's grace, to see a need, and if you see a need, to meet a need. I have more to say. <laughs> But I'm going to conclude with this. Where do we go from here? How do we respond? Can I tell you, as we got to have the privilege of hearing uh, Norm Weeb's story this morning, as we have the privilege of sitting under God's word and reading this in Acts chapter 4, where they're all of one mind, actually they're all of one heart and soul, they are one, they are unified, and, and we see that they're sharing their things. Is there, something, is there not something in this that just stirs your heart? Like, Really? Is there not something about this passage that speaks to your heart? You see this ideal, and you're like, wow, there's something about Eden and how it was meant to be in this, and there's something about the eternal city and how things will be in this, and they're capturing it here. Does it not stir your heart? Well, what do we do? How do we respond to such a bold passage as this? Well, we can respond in two ways. I want to invite the band to come up now. These are really quick. First, we respond with loving the gospel. Love the gospel. You'll see my, my headings here. Gospel-oriented, spirit-filled community is marked by, and I give the list. Well, it's gospel-oriented. It causes us to love the gospel, that we, that we are in the gospel, that we preach the gospel to ourselves. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that we meditate on that, that we love the gospel, know the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves daily, and secondly, that we pray that the Holy Spirit would make us generous people. I encourage you to pray to that end. Love the gospel, see the gospel, and pray to that end that he would make us a generous people. Let's pray, and then let's respond with a song. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word of yours this morning that we can give ourselves to. Lord, as I press it on us as a church, you know, it is so heavily pressed on me. I feel the conviction in my life. And so, Lord, I pray this, that we would know and love the gospel more and more and more, that it would be on our hearts, that it would be on the tip of our tongues, that we would meditate on it in the mornings and think on it and live it out during the day. Lord, that we would be a people who love the gospel And Lord, as we talk about bold, fervent prayer this morning, would you make us a people that pray that the Holy Spirit would make us generous people to do a work in our hearts that totally reorients us around the gospel in a culture that promotes the opposite. Lord, I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with us and we'll respond.